0: This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and I'm joined, of course, by the Libertarian, Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Now, Richard, you and I are both back from a little well-deserved summer vacation after what may have been, I think, the most consequential Supreme Court term in a decade or two, but Good Lord willing, and Creeks don't rise, there will be more cases next year. And there's one in particular I want to ask you about, and that's Moore v. Harper. So last week, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case in the coming fall term. Now, this case comes out of North Carolina, where Republican legislatures are upset with the state Supreme Court in North Carolina and their decision to throw out the legislature's preferred, and some would say, gerrymandered congressional map and replace it with one drawn by the state Supreme Court. Now, listeners may have heard the term the independent state legislature theory, and that's what this case deals with. The issue at hand is the extent to which the elections clause of the Constitution applies or not. So, Richard, I I know you're going to give us the background on this, but at the end, I also want to know, are state Supreme Courts allowed to rule on state legislation with regard to decisions regarding elections?
1: Well, I'm going to start at the end and then go to the beginning. Um, I think the answer is that they are, and I think that the Mistake in the general analysis is to start with the elections clause of the Constitution. There are actually two of them, one having to do with the Congress, which is what's at stake here, and the other having to do with the choice of electors for the president. Uh, but let me, um, in effect, uh, uh, start with the, the first of these sets. And what it says, in effect, is that when you're dealing with these particular cases the, um, uh, in, in the Congress, that the legislature shall determine the time, place, and manner of what's going on and then with an exception for the place of senators it can be reviewed by congress well the first thing to ask is this particular situation having to do with redistricting a question of time place and manner legislation and if you think of the way in which that clause is used analogously um, in connection with the first amendment a time place and manner in that context means can you do it on a public street can you use uh do it at night can you use uh various kinds of loud uh bullhorns in order to conduct the thing and so forth it has nothing to do whatsoever with the substance of the speech which is governed by a completely different document and that's what i think is involved here Uh, what's involved with the time place and manner is when you conduct the election where you open up the courts and things like that uh, but the two issues that are not covered, in my view, by this particular situation, are one who is eligible to vote in these various elections, which is a very big deal when you consider, for example, uh, may former criminals uh, decide, vote in elections after they've been released or even while they're in jail. And the other thing it doesn't touch is redistricting. Uh, so then where are those things touched? It seems to me that they are subject to the inherent power of the state in order to govern its own particular affairs. And this is perfectly consistent with the original constitutional doctrine, uh, which essentially Had this great mass of undifferentiated powers left to the states and then there were occasional forays into the forum into this issue by the uh congress and what you have here with respect to the elections clause is one of these split provisions in which the states get to try it first and then the federal government gets to override it Uh, but i don't even think that the state legislatures when they do this have to do the redistricting themselves i think it is perfectly correct Um, to say that they can decide to delegate this to an impartial panel. It's not because under the uh, Legislation Elections Court, State Commission is a legislature, that's just silly, which is what the Supreme Court said in 2015 in a case involving Arizona. I think the correct answer is, That clause has nothing to do with this particular issue. So the state then has to decide how to do it. And at this particular point, all the questions about uh, environment uh, and having to do with the gerrymandering really become extremely important. And the thought that somehow or other, uh, the Democratic legislature in New York, the Democratic legislature in California, the Democratic legislature in Illinois, or the Republican legislature in North Carolina, or the Republican legislature in Texas, or anywhere are going to be guardians of minority interests within the people is just a fantasy. And so one of the things you're always worried about in these cases is whether or not you think the judges are going to do a better job of this than the legislature. But looking at the New York experience and looking at the North Carolina experience, I think what's happened is you get the right kind of experts who are impartial and put them on a commission, have them come up with something, they will do vastly better Uh, Than the state legislatures will do. And that I think it's perfectly appropriate for a Supreme Court within a state to say, you know. Well, we now subject reapportionment to the same mixed powers of uh, legislative power and constitutional oversight that happen everywhere else. Uh, It seems to me that an equal protection argument based upon the dilution of votes is perfectly effective. I think that Rucho, which sort of threw up its hands at the whole thing, which was the federal decision from 2019, was a kind of an intellectual disaster, which led to the following untenable situation. At the federal level, the equal protection clause tells you one person, one vote, Oh my God! We really have to get this the 0.001 percent, or whatever the ridiculous number is. And then when it comes to compactness and continuity and structure, oh, you can do anything you darn well, please. What you really need to do is to recognize that the first is much too extreme on intervention, and the second is much too passive, and that this problem of what they call cracking and packing, uh, essentially taking uh, uh, districts and putting them in such a way is that if you can split one district into two, you can give yourself uh, more power in two districts than in one, and packing, which was, if there's a safe district for the other pie, make it even more, so you get two districts that are 53-47 in your favor, and they get one district that goes from, say, 60-40 to 80-20, that is, they get more votes, wasted votes in a particular district in order to do it, the whole thing reeks to the nostrils, and it strikes me that uh, the North Carolina court was right to say it. I think the Republicans, when they're coming after it through the legislation cause, are coming at it in the wrong way. As I said to you, this is residual police power. And it seems to me that those residual police powers are subject to constitutional constraints, like every other activity uh, that a state undertakes through its legislative or executive branch.
0: Well, let's talk about some potential consequences if this were to, this independent state legislature theory were to be actually upheld um there are plenty of worries in the in the news after the supreme court decided to take this case in the fall they looked at this the, the conservative makeup of the court and said oh i think this this might actually happen so there are worries of you know extreme gerrymandering happening ext- uh, worries of voter suppression um well, in, in in the words of you know people who are more left-leaning um but you know the i think the bigger worry here is going to be how this might affect presidential elections won't affect it at all because there's no district. Won't affect it at They're
1: all. They're not districting issues, right?
0: Well, isn't isn't the worry, Richard, though, that the state legislatures would get more control and could send, for example, um, alternate slates of electors. I mean, that that's that's the big worry here.
1: Yeah, now you're talking a different problem. Okay, let's let's just sort of keep the two problem section. Okay. Um the reapportionment problem here is unique with respect to the Congress. And everybody agrees that the state courts can do this with what they want. And I've given you reasons to believe that the federal constitution doesn't apply to this particular situation. There is a second argument in which I think the Republicans here are probably wrong, which is when they say the legislature have the power to do certain things, it means that they can act in ways that are flatly unconstitutional. And they can do so either in connection with violations of state law or with federal law. And so the real question is, what kind of oversight do you want to have? Suppose what we did is we had a state legislature which decided that the legislature shall determine that no members of any minority group shall be allowed to vote in any federal election Um, are we going to say oh that's just terrific um, that there's no state constraint that's put on that no federal constraint that's put on that i mean you test it against the extreme case and it's perfectly clear that something has to be done on the other hand you can go way over in the opposite direction as happened in pennsylvania during the last election where the state legislature acted, I think, in a perfectly reasonable fashion. It says, we've had all this problem with respect to the COVID virus and eligibility, and we're going to have to change the rules in this particular election to handle that. And they make a number of forms. And then the Pennsylvania Supreme Court says, three days isn't enough. We've got to do seven. It's one thing to go after egregious gerrymandering of the most outrageous sort. And it's another thing to go after a reasonably well-planned situation on the other side. And so what happens is the problem that you have with state interventions is their right to intervene when it turns out there's no rational basis for what's done, which is what happened with the North Carolina legislature. And they're absolutely bizarre to intervene when the legislature with the greater command of the knowledge comes up with something Which essentially gets it about right. Now, one of the tricks that you have here is the clauses that you use in many cases are extremely broad. Uh, So, in the North Carolina case in Pennsylvania, they start talking about free election. And as far as I can see, that clause may and the Equal Protection Clause probably more plausible, deal with the situation where you rig the election. But it certainly doesn't seem to apply in those cases where you're trying to control a situation of voter fraud and all sorts of other collateral difficulties uh, when you're faced with major social consequences beyond the control of everybody. So what you always want to do is to recognize that judicial review depends upon the standard of review. And I'm all in favor of state courts and the Supreme Court, when necessary, intervening in a egregious cases, but I'll be darned if I can understand why it's appropriate to intervene when a state legislature actually does its job. Uh, So, you know, the question is, whom do you want is, I think, a perfectly fair one. I've indicated my preferences with respect to election commissions, staffed by experts. And I think that the work in both New York, a deeply Democratic state, and the work in North Carolina, a deeply Republican state, uh, points to the fact that this is not a bad situation. But on the other stuff, having to fine tune the way in which the time and place and manner of an election is conducted, um, and I think you know, counting late votes would be covered by that particular clause. I do think federal oversight is going to be appropriate, and I think that state intervention on the basis of a general clause like a free elections clause is utterly inappropriate given the complexity of the issue and the relative good faith in the way in which people respond. So you know, legislatures on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays may be agents of evil change. And on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays, they may be perfectly virtuous. And on Sunday, thank God, they're not in section. So it's kind of 50-50. But I think you have to take those two cases and treat them in a very way. Now, you are looking at the Supreme Court and the 6-3 majority. I think the majority does it. I regard the Show opinion, which Justice Roberts penned, as a very bad decision uh, because what it did is it ignored a major problem and didn't even try to lift a finger to see what could be done about it. And so the reason why I think the conservatives, in fact, are likely to do mischief in this particular case is this position of extreme deference based upon some misguided notion of judicial restraint may be what drives the situation. Uh, but there's no reason that you should think of this as politically partisan for Democrats or Republicans, if you go through the various states, what's happened is anytime there is one state in which a party has a commanding advantage, it will use its reapportionment powers in order to strengthen that situation. And let me mention something else which I think is extremely important. One of the reasons why the Supreme Court has got itself into this god-awful mess is that it certainly believes in a one-vote for one person, kind of principle. But it also thinks that there's a duty to create majority minority districts. And if you start to create those with crazy quilt patterns of one form or another, all districts are going to be crazy because every time you pack somebody into one district under the minority rule, what you have to do is to crack everybody else. So the same critique that is made of general kind of gerrymandering should be made of all the separate from majority-minority districts, which I think are very, very dangerous. And what's interesting about both the New York statute and the North Carolina statute is they take race out of politics. And to me that's just an enormous advantage in this kind of situation. And frankly the chips will fall where they may, uh, but it's better that they fall than they may. Uh, rather than playing a game with loaded dice to sort of mix the metaphor, and that's what's happening here. So if you look at this, the Republican position is wrong with respect to the legislature power, with respect to redistricting. It's wrong, therefore, to say that you can't use commissions, and the Supreme Court under Rucho, I think, was wrong to say that what we do is we police to the nines the uh, population differences between districts and utterly ignore the contortions that state legislatures do to put these together together, except when we encourage them in order to try to create minority-majority districts. This is a very unhappy mess that we have in front of it. And you know, I'm as worried as many of the liberals are about this, not because of partisan advantage, but because I think that conservatives sometimes overlearn the lesson of judicial restraint. If you recall, I wrote a book called Takings, which around page 281 said, oh, by the way, if this analysis is correct, the New Deal is unconstitutional. And you could imagine, I'm sure you do imagine, the kind of massive abuse that I was subject to for making that kind of position. But the point is, if you have broad constitutional provision with discernible meanings, with the takings clauses, judicial restraint is not faithful to the general principle that you basically conserve these things in terms of their original and public meaning. That is, an originalist cannot say, I'm always an originalist and I always believe in judicial restraint. You can't have both of those things and so forth. So there is a deeper kind of problem in this stuff in which the sort of judicial restraint becomes a trump over the, sorry, I don't want to talk about the man, uh, a dominant position over a more nuanced form of constitutional analysis. And, you know, this is a kind of error to which everybody can participate, and the liberals make these same mistakes on other issues, uh, and the conservatives make them. Uh, you basically have much too much regulation of various kinds of economic issues, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the anti-discrimination laws, the labor laws, and so forth, mainly because None of the conservatives were prepared to say that the Constitution actually does have a coherent position to take with respect to economic liberties and private property. And they wish to ignore it by making rather preposterous arguments one way or another. And then the liberals join that by making equally preposterous arguments with other cases, like somehow other the notion that the death penalty is a form of cruel and unusual punishment when there are three specific texts in the Constitution which recognize that capital offenses, in fact, are punishable by both the states and the federal And so this is a party in which everybody is guilty to my view of the situation their people are just much too much concerned in the way in which they think about these things. They have a preconceived both of what it is they want to do and then to do it. And so the liberals are much too keen on massive legislative power when it comes to economic regulations and much too reluctant to accept state control over various kinds of morals issues. It's really a very, very complicated lawsuit. And if you're thinking about this institutionally, uh, there's only two words I think that apply to both parties. And to both factions on the
0: Supreme Court, start over. Start over. Well, hang on, Richard. I want to clarify one point here because this, this is helpful, right? We've been talking about why this case, um, Moore v. Harper, relates to gerrymandering, relates to elections, uh, election districts. Um, and that's because the, the first elections clause in the Constitution says, and I want to say this, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed by in each state by the legislature thereof, unless Congress, you know, steps in. Um, Now, when I said, you know, there are worries about what this could mean for 2024, were this, you know, case to be um, allowed to go forward, you said, oh, this doesn't apply. Now, is that it doesn't apply because this elections clause actually says for senators and representatives, it doesn't have to deal with. Yeah, but then you have to look
1: at the other election clause. Okay. And that's the one, and there you did wrench in something which is extremely dangerous. Let me sort of indicate what's going on uh, and deal with the, the presidential election. Whatever the original constitution was about is long gone and lost to the mist of history. What the founders did, as was often the case they were very conscious of trying to create a republic. And back in 1787, a republic was the antithesis of a democracy. A democracy, God forbid, allowed direct representation by the people in which the mob would then agree to confiscate the property of the rich, would agree to negate the debts that people owed to the rich and all the rest of that stuff. And so the system of republicanism regarded a whole series of indirect elections of one kind or another, designed to make sure that majority forces would never start to take hold, And we also were trying to constantly split power, including that of the president and the vice president. And so what they did is they set up this system of an electoral college. We know that this system was supposed to be a deliberative body because you could not be a member of the electoral college and deliberate if you held some other kind of office under Congress. That's part of the basic law. The system turned out to be completely unworkable. Uh, The electoral college is not the college of cardinals. The college of cardinals can deliberate to its hard consent, because there's nobody there who's an agent for anybody else. The moment you are elected to be an elector, you've got a principle of the entire state behind you, and you just can't be a free agent. And so if you're elected by a majority who thinks you're conservative, and then what you do is you turn out to be liberal or the reverse, it's a betrayal of trust. So what they did very early on after the adoption of the 14, of the 12th Amendment in 1804 is they developed a system in which the, the electors were pledged. So once you were elected by a particular party, by the state legislature, when you went to your state electoral college, you had to vote your way. You were no longer an independent delegate. You were just a messenger. So they can completely changed the roles of the elector, Um, and uh, this has always been sanctioned by long use. It's never been sanctioned by a decent originalist interpretation, but my view is if you have something that works for 200 years, the fact that it's not consistent with the original Constitution is not what you worry about. In my book on the classical liberal Constitution, I push very hard for the notion of a prescriptive Constitution, whereby long usage could override particular texts, just the way long occupation of somebody else's property could create either an easement or an outright fee simple, depending on what the nature of the occupation was. So that's the way in which this thing starts to go. And you don't want to let anybody but anybody interfere with this. Now, one of the conditions that we've always set under this situation is that the state gets to appoint the electors through this process a grand total of one time. If you were to read this to say, look, the state legislatures now control the process, and it turns out if it's a Republican state legislature and the Democrats have carried it, what the state legislature should now declare is it wants a new slate of electors that is going to choose. This would be an absolute catastrophic change. So the moment you decide that you're changing from the original design of this system, what you have to do is you have to make all the appropriate changes. So one of the things which you should never ever even considered is the idea that a state legislature, once it knows what the vote is, can decide if the opposite party has carried the presidential election, it's going to change the election to somebody whom it sees. And so it's not just the text at that point, it's just a completely different set of arguments. And these arguments are based upon the fact that you cannot in effect run the system that we put into place somewhere in the first part of the 19th century by allowing legislations to take this hyperbolic role. And so it should be flatly, completely and totally unconstitutional to do that under both state law. And since you're choosing federal officials, it's got to be unconstitutional under federal law. And there's a lesson here, you have to two clauses that kind of look like they're working in parallel. One's a federal position, position, one's an electoral college provision, Uh, and the word legislature appears in both of them. Um, But what you really have to do is look extremely closely at each cause separately from the other in order to figure out the way in which these causes start to interact and uh, that's the kind of lesson is constitutional law if you're careful about it, it cannot be done on this grand wholesale level in which you say oh we have a living constitution oh we have an originalist constitution you have to be clause specific and you have given what i've just said about the prescriptive constitution to be aware that in many cases an originalist meaning is perfectly defensible but in many other cases it turns out it's not if i were to list you all the provisions of the American Constitution where originalism has gotten a slap in the face um, and say, let's go back to the original Constitution, you would look at me and say, oh, you want to overrule Marbury and Madison? Um, and basically, say that there's no judicial review at this late state? Do you want to assume that the Supreme Court doesn't get appellate jurisdiction over state courts that rule against federal constitutional claims? Uh, do you want to assume that corporations, in effect, can't get into diversity jurisdiction? Oh, you want to go back to the original design of the Electoral College, just to mention four? Um, you do any of these structural reforms, and this nation comes to an end. And so what happens is after a while, you have to sort of recognize this and then you get to cases like Plessy and Ferguson. This is not structural. Well, do you want to overturn that because segregation is a downright evil? The answer is yes. Then you get the Roe v. Wade. And I think I'm not mistaken, Tom, if I mentioned to you, there's a bit of controversy over the decision in Dobbs.
0: A little bit. A little bit.
1: A little bit over Dobbs because the issue is, is this a prescriptive Constitution case or is this a case in which the originalism does it? And it's particularly stark because the originalist arguments in favor of what harry blackman wrote uh, in roe v wade in 1973 were a travesty and so the question then is is it a travesty which has gained dignity over time if you go back to 1973 everybody was worried about Lockter against new york and legislative um, and upsets to congressional supremacy. And now when you start talking about Roe, nobody on the left starts to talk about legislative supremacy anymore. They're all talking about sacred and fundamental constitutional rights. So, I mean, that's an omelet that's gonna take a hell of a long time to unscramble. And it turns out just as we would have expected, uh, the notion that the Supreme Court had as well. Now this matter is turned back to the states and will live happily ever after. That's not true. Um, just today or yesterday, Joe Biden came out and says, you know, if you're a state physician and you don't uh, give somebody a facient of one kind or another, that's a form of discrimination based upon sex and pregnancy and so forth. So the federal law actually controls that case. And Lord knows whether that's right, because you have to go back and read the President's Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which doesn't say a thing about abortions and to assume that it covers it. And then you have to figure out whether or not uh, the situation in Dobbs really did return this matter to the state so that the federal government is disabled or that it returned it to the federal system in which both states and the federal government have a joint power. Uh, the naive view was, oh, it's just a matter for the states now, but you know, congressional power is pretty boring under a wide number of other statutes, and it's going to take an enormous amount of time to work this thing out uh, because the issues are very tough. And my view about this is what the Supreme Court should do in our particular case, is they should forget about notions of judicial restraint, lead the documents in the way in which I've said that, and uphold this particular decision, um, and get rid of Ruscio saying we're not going to use Ruscio to stop the states from doing this, and we're going to say if the state wants to use a commission, it's not bound to uh, use the legislature, because the legislature in this case is not governed by the uh, time, place, and manner clause. It's its own residual police power, and it can delegate that to a commission Uh, If it gives it workable standards of one kind or another, and the thought that somehow the state legislatures that have failed miserably in all of these cases are going to invoke a non-delegation doctrine in order to wipe out these commissions would be another very regrettable consequence of these new constitutional revolutions, which tend to go too far, too fast, without sufficient differentiation of various kinds
0: of cases. That'll do it for the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. If you'd like to hear more from Richard, you can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas at hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Talk to you next time.
1: This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.